Well, today, I'm excited about today. I've been looking forward to uh, launching into a new study with all of you. Um, you, you. You're well aware that we finished 1 Corinthians a while ago, and sort of we've sort of just been bouncing around in Scripture over the last few months, over the summer, haven't we? Um, but I've enjoyed the studies that we've done. We went through an Old Testament book. We went through Haggai, or Haggai, um, and we went through the Sermon on the, the Mount. We've had a, a few other guest speakers in the midst there, so it's been uh, just a really good time. But I always look forward to our, our church studies. Um, and, you know, I, got, I wanted to tell you that I don't, I don't approach the choosing of those books lightly. Because <laughs> uh, one, one reason is I know we're going to be in the book as a church for a year or more, right? We're, we're starting a new study. We're going to be in it for a while. We were in it for a year and a half or so for the book of John and then same for 1 Corinthians. But um, I have spent a lot of time praying about and thinking about uh, whether or not uh, we're ready for the book of Hebrews. Because that's the second thing I really do take into account the spiritual maturity of our church, at least the majority of our, our church. And where are we? And what is it that God uh, wants for his people? Where does he want to take us? And it was really clear for me when we were going into 1 Corinthians, I thought that was the perfect step because it contained a lot of practical truths uh, related to, to the proper church function. But as I look at Hebrews, uh, this, this book, is it just contains so many wonderful, wonderful, uh, deep truths, but a lot of them can be very difficult to understand. And we have a, a number of new believers, you know, we've had new people coming to the church over the past uh, couple of years, and so some of these things might be uh, a little bit deep, uh, but they'll require just a little bit of diligence and faithfulness on all of our part. I, I think one of the reasons that Hebrews is a difficult book is because it's so closely associated with the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And if, if you've ever done a reading program to go in Genesis and just read through the Bible, Leviticus is that book that you get to and you get about halfway through or maybe a couple chapters in, you go, ew, and you just skip. <laughs> you just kind of start flipping through pages. Like, I just want to get through this as fast as I can. It's icky, right? You just, you just don't want any more to do with it. Um, but let me tell you, you know, it's so important to, to understand the book of Leviticus, and it will be important in understanding that book as we go into Hebrews. But don't worry, if you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, you will be by the time we're done, <laughs> because we will make sure we go back and forth and look at where a lot of these things are, are coming from. But I will say this, if you want to give yourself a little bit of an advantage uh, this year as we're going into this study— why not, over the next month or so, just begin to familiarize yourself with the book of Leviticus? It will just be a benefit to you. Uh, so if you haven't started reading your Bible in the new year, you're looking for a place to start, uh, go to Leviticus, because I think it will help give you a foundation and a little bit of a jump start on some of the things that we'll uh, come across in the book of, of Hebrews, because it, it often refers to the ceremonial symbols of Leviticus, and it does that to illustrate how those things in the Old Testament, they were just copies. Uh, they were just shadows of the better things to come that would come with Christ. The fulfillment of the Old Testament and the, the reality of those symbols, they're all found in Jesus. This is, this is why Jesus is better. In fact, that's just what I've named the study. Hebrews, Jesus is better. And you might be thinking, well, better than what? Well, fill in the blank. Uh, he's better than everything. I don't care what you put behind that. Jesus is better than it. And you will find that to be a, a major theme as we go through this book. And so, you know, regardless of any difficulties, I think we just go ahead and embark on this study because ultimately we all need to rely on the Holy Spirit, don't we? He's our teacher and he'll be faithful to us. Um, and we, if we are really faithfully committed to understanding truth. So with that, we really need to cover some preliminaries. Uh, so this is largely an introduction, although we will get to verse 1 and part of verse 2 today. But first, uh, I want to deal with the author. Uh, there is no author that is mentioned in this book. You know, we've just come out of 1 Corinthians, and it's very easy to see who wrote that book because the very first word of the book is Paul, <laughs> right? So we don't have to look very far before we understand who the author is. But here, no author is, is mentioned in this letter. And church history and tradition has long held that the Apostle Paul 
wrote this book. Uh, But there really isn't anything to substantiate that. The style of the book, the internal characteristics, they don't really reflect Paul's hand, how he writes. But some things sort of point to Paul. The, uh, the author in here mentions that he is in chains, and we certainly know that Paul was imprisoned and in, in chains, and that's mentioned in chapter 10, verse 34. But he also mentions that Timothy, Timothy will be coming. And if you remember, Paul is the one that led Timothy to Christ, and Timothy traveled with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And so many people think that it was Paul. But how do you, how do you explain the internal characteristics that are different? Well, Way, way back, Clement of Alexandria, you're going way back here, he believed that Paul had written the book, but he had done it in Hebrew, and that Luke had translated it into Greek. And so that's why we see this, this difference. But it was the church father Origen who was really one of the first to challenge the thinking that it was, was Paul. Now, I personally, just, just to give you my personal opinion, don't think it was Paul. And I'm a simple guy just for the very simple reason that for every single of the 13 letters that Paul has written in the New Testament, every single one of them, you can look at them now, start with this, Paul, (laughs) I, Paul, or Paul. He just comes out and says he's the author, but this, we don't have that in here. Now, many names have been suggested. This is just for your own information. It's interesting. Barnabas, who traveled with Paul on many journeys, is one of the men that have been suggested as a possible or potential, at least, author of this letter. But you can't prove that any more than we can disprove it's Paul. Others that have been mentioned are Clement of Rome, Luke, Silvanus, Philip, the evangelist, even Priscilla, (laughs) Apollos, and Epaphras. But here's the truth. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So I'm going to refer to the author of this letter as the same author that wrote every other uh, letter and book in the Bible, and that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Holy Spirit has written this. I'm not going to concern myself too much with the author. How about the audience? The audience. Well, this book also doesn't mention uh, to the Corinthians or ter- to the church at Colossae. Uh, we, we don't know in terms of the introduction because there isn't an introduction. We only know because there is an added sub, uh, an added introduction that says to the Hebrews, to the Jews. So no Gentiles are mentioned anywhere. They're never referred to in this book. So we do know that the audience of this book, and this is going to be really, really important that you remember this as we go through, is strictly Jewish. This letter is to a Jewish community, a Jewish congregation. And the, that fact is going to be important, um, and we'll talk about it just in, in, a, in a bit. Now, not much is really known about this particular community in terms of its location, where they were meeting. It's always helpful geographically, isn't it, to say, oh, it's the Corinthians, and where did they meet? They met here. And they, we really don't know. Uh, but the author seems to know of their earlier days as a community. And I'm just going to kind of walk you through to just uh, point out some things as a way of introduction. So in Hebrews chapter 2, and you can turn there now, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, he, he writes this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the, the, the author is really recounting how the, the church was formed. They were evangelized. That's what it's telling us. Apostles went to them with signs, with wonders to validate their message, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so they were were formed because of of that. And really, this is a helpful clue because it tells us that that Jewish community had not heard these words from Jesus' mouth himself. They, they, They weren't around. They didn't hear uh, of, of Jesus, which means a couple of things. Um, they had to come together after the time of Jesus, but also this means that they probably were not located in close proximity to Jerusalem, and most people think not even in Israel. In fact, a lot of people think this community existed closer to Greece, perhaps, perhaps in North Africa, in Cyrene, uh, somewhere in there, but nobody knows for, for sure. But they were a a Jewish community of believers, and they had existed for some time before this letter was written. Because we're also told that they had enough time to be a church to uh, minister to other saints. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. 
It says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints. And you do minister. And so they have been together long enough to, to help minister to other saints. And the author even requests that, that, that they pray for him as he's in chains. So whoever they are and whoever the author is, they know one another and they know one another well. Another important clue is given to us in chapter 10. I do want to show you this one for sure. In chapter 10, verse 32, it says this, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So this is really helpful because it tells us that this Jewish community you know, hadn't heard these words of Jesus. They existed somewhere, but they also existed in a time that they were suffering. They endured a great, a great struggle, it says, of sufferings. But they did not, um, they were not martyred because Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that they, that they had not resisted to the point of bloodshed. So they were suffering, but it wasn't at a time of great martyrdom where, where, where you know, they were being beheaded and things like that. And the reason this is all helpful, because it kind of helps us narrow in the date. This congregation had to come together sometime after Jesus' ascension, obviously, uh, but also after the apostolic missionaries began to go out from Jerusalem and spread the gospel, which had to be seven years after the church in Jerusalem was founded. So sometime after AD 40, somewhere in there. But it also had to be before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And I'll show you why in just a bit. And that happened in AD 70. So somewhere between uh, 40 and uh, 70. Now, remember I mentioned that the suffering that they endured will help even narrow down the time some more. Here's the reason. Um, You might remember Ananias the high priest. I mentioned him uh, just a while back when we talked about um, turning the other cheek. You remember that? And, And Paul was talking to the priest, but he didn't know he was talking to the priest, and the priest commanded that Paul be slapped across the mouth. Um, and then Paul reviled uh, that, that priest. Well, that, that priest really made it difficult for the Jews who chose to follow Christ. Uh, they were banished from the synagogue. They were not allowed to go to the temple. They couldn't talk to priests. They couldn't bring a sacrifice. None of those things were banned from any holy places whatsoever. He really made it difficult for Jews to just exist as Jews if they chose to follow Christ. And I think that's the kind of suffering that this community endured. They weren't martyred, but they were ostracized. They were no longer Jewish by all accounts. In fact, if you weren't Jewish and you couldn't go to the synagogue, you were worse than a Gentile. And so they were really, really suffering. And and Ananias, the high priest, he lived, he reigned sort of AD 47 to 52. And since their suffering is is mentioned as having taken place in the former days, it's probably closer to the end of that time. I think right before the destruction of the temple, somewhere in the late 60s. So that just gives you a time uh, frame there. And this brings us to the theme of the letter. Why is this theme, uh, why is this letter being written? Because for a Jew to come out of Judaism, to accept Christianity, that is no small thing. If you're a Gentile here today, I no doubt you sacrificed in some way to come to to, to Christ. But I will tell you, nowhere nearly as much as a Jew. Because to come out of Judaism was to basically turn your back on your entire heritage. To say, I'm okay to lose my family. To lose everything I know. To not go to the synagogue. To not be able to talk to people in the street because they've banished me. To not be able to go to the temple. To not be able to offer sacrifices, you really had to sacrifice all of those things. And you also have to think about this, that you, if you wanted to convince a Jew that there was a new message from God, you really got to consider all that, they, all that they grew up learning. Their entire place of worship was divinely appointed, wasn't it? The temple. Their entire sort of appointed way of worshiping, the sacrifices and the, and the ceremonies and all that, was divinely appointed. That all came from God. 
So you could go to a Jew and you could say, all right, hey, I've got the truth. What would they say? Well, I've got the truth. And you say, okay, but hold on. My truth comes from God directly. What would they say? So does mine. And they would be right. It came from God. God had established absolutely everything. The absolutely every single way they worship, he had formulated the entire religion. So they had to really put some great faith and trust, which, to just tag this on again, is why at that time, signs and wonders had to be accompanied by the message. They were sacrificing so much. You had to have something that would say this message is legitimate. This comes from God. I hope that makes sense. And so, the, so you contrast that with a Gentile coming to Christ, and yeah, they're going to sacrifice some things, but they worship pagan gods, and you know who knows how long that had been going on, and they're man-made statues and whatnot. But, but the entire religion, Judaism, had come out of all of that God had established from the very creation, from the very beginning. Now, think about that. You, turn, you come out of that, and on top of that, you're persecuted. Your own brothers and sisters, your own Jewish family says, we're not having you. And listen, the temple still stood. Priests still ministered in that, yet they couldn't go there. And they couldn't go to the synagogue. And they were cut off from their people. And they were outcasts. So these Jewish Christians were beginning to wonder, as I humanly would, if, if this is even worth it. I mean, maybe it's just easier to go, to go back. Let's reverse course. Let's go back to what we know is comfortable. So part of Part of that was coming from persecution, but part of it was coming from someplace else, spiritual immaturity. It is not an easy thing to endure persecution, particularly if you're not uh, spiritually mature. And this group wasn't. In chapter 5, just take a brief look there, chapter 5, verse 12, this is what he writes. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you Again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. See, this church had existed long enough so that the author was able to say, you know, you should be teaching people by this point, but you're not. So I have to still give you milk, right? That's the stuff the babies, the, the babies get. That You don't have the solid food yet. You should be having solid food, but you, you, you can't, you don't. So I have to give you milk. So really the, the immaturity of the believers, the suffering of the believers who are ready to go back to, to Judaism, all of that is, is, is taken into account, and this is why Hebrews is written. It is written to encourage them, encourage them to stay with Christ. And this is why, because Christ is better than anything that they are hoping to go back to. That's why this letter is written. I know you're suffering. I know it's hard. But listen, what will you really be going back to? And so better, this word better is a key word in this book. You're going to see it over and over and over again. The author continually contrasts the old with the new to show how much better the new is. You're going to see a better hope, a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifice, better possession, a better country, and a better resurrection. Everything is better in Christ. Everything about Christ is presented as better And honestly, when we dwell in him, we dwell in an entirely new uh, dimension. He calls it the heavenlies. And so all throughout this book, you see those heavenly things as well. He reminds them you have a heavenly calling, a heavenly gift, a heavenly country you're going to, and the heavenly Jerusalem, which we studied when we looked at Revelation 21. So why would you want to go back to anything in the past? So the letter really is to show the superiority of Christ to everything, which is how the whole book begins in the first three verses. And then it goes on from there. And just to give you a brief outline of what we're going to be seeing, the author is going to demonstrate how Jesus is superior to the angels, which were the great messengers of the Old Testament, the ones that accompanied the Ten Commandments of God. Jesus is better than them. Jesus is better than Moses, the great deliverer of God's people. Jesus is better than Joshua, the great conqueror. He's better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He's better than the Old Covenant. He's better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And God's faithful people are better than the faithless. And the testimony of Christ is better than any testimony you will come across. 
So that's what we're going to be looking forward to in this book. Now, one final note before we begin to look at the first couple of verses, and I just wanted to hit this at the beginning. There are some difficult chapters in this book. If I've had discussions with people about verses that are difficult to understand, the majority of them have come from Hebrews, particularly in chapter 6 and chapter 10. And so just to sort of touch on that at the beginning, don't worry when we get to them, we'll really dig into it. But many Christians get mixed up and they get confused about those chapters. And one of the things that we have to remember about any church, any church fellowship, is that there's a range of people. There's a range of people here in this room today. I can honestly tell you, standing here before you, that I, I don't know that every single person taking up a chair in this room today is a, is a true believer, is, is truly redeemed, is one of God's chosen. I, I cannot determine that. I, I have no idea. God knows. But in every church, would you agree that there are true believers? Every church. And in this congregation of Hebrews, do you believe that there are true Jewish believers? Absolutely. And so the great majority of of this this book is focused on them, the true believers. And and we're going to look at a lot of that. But really, in any given fellowship, you find three groups. You duly do. But this first group, the true believers, that is so important. That's the majority of Hebrews. It's aimed at them, the born again. And like the Corinthians, though, they were immature. Do you remember the Corinthians and their immaturity and, uh, and even in their carnality? What did Paul still call them? Saints. Saints. Okay? They were holy in God's eyes. They were set apart in God's eyes. Even though they were immature, even though they were stumbling, even though they were sinful and carnal, they were still the church. Okay? So the immaturity, those things are okay. They were just, they were struggling, and they were struggling to deal with the difficulties that they were experiencing, um, and they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to things that just would make their life easier, back into the standards, back into the patterns of Judaism. But listen, not back in terms of losing salvation. We've got to make that distinction. That's not what they would, that's not the danger here. The danger is that they would get uh, they would start to confuse the gospel with, with legalism and ceremonies, and that would blow their testimony, that would weaken their faith. But they weren't in danger of losing their salvation. And every believer needs, to remind, needs a reminder once in a while to not trust in something else other than Christ, don't we? We all can easily begin to trust in things of the world, because it's hard. So let's not be too hard on these Hebrew Christians, okay? They're struggling, they're being persecuted. They're not in danger of losing their salvation here. And you have to remember as well that the Jews, it was particularly confusing because the new covenant was so different from the Old Testament. So different. It had so many tangible forms, ceremonies, patterns, methods, uh, uh, chief of which which were the the temple rituals. But um, but in, in all of that, They're just being called by this author to embrace the things of the new covenant because in them we find the fulfillment of everything that God has started in the old. So that's to the believers. That's the first group, and that's the majority of this letter. But in this group, you find another group, and you find it in every church, and that would mean in this church as well. I call them intellectual believers. Let me clarify that. These are people that understand and believe the gospel. They understand it, they believe it. Belief is not enough. James says that even the demons believe in God and they tremble. It's not about belief. And I'd like to show you uh, uh, John, what he wrote in John chapter 1, verse 12, because he makes it very clear. This is what he writes. But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. There you have two words. I've underlined them. There you see the belief. Belief is is important. Belief must be there. Obviously, you must believe. Uh, Without faith, without belief, it's impossible to please God, we're told. So you must believe, absolutely. But you also must receive him. Belief stops just short. It's receiving him. 
And so these people are people who believe all of the claims of Christianity, right? They understand it all. They would say yes and amen to all of that, yet they're not willing to make a personal commitment. They're not willing to place their full faith and trust in Christ. They haven't received him. They're just intellectually convinced, but that's where it stops, which means this, and I I don't mean to be brutal. It means they're non-Christians. So when I said intellectual believers, I'm not using the word believer as a Christian. It means they're non-Christians. And listen, I've worked in ministry for years. I worked with youth leaders in a youth ministry because we had 100 kids, 100 young people running around. We needed help. And so we had a lot of parents from the congregation that would help us. They would be youth leaders. And we had this one particular couple that their kids in the youth group were some of the worst and and most terribly behaved out of all of them. But not just in terms of they were disobedient. They were high school kids, but the way they would dress. They were a couple of girls, provocative. They knew we sort of tried to keep a code and tried to encourage people. They they were the ones that would dress that way. And I really began to kind of question, like, where, where are their parents? And I remember just asking the, the, the dad one day, in a, in a casual way, just, just honestly to, to see what his answer would be, uh, about, about what brought him to belief in the gospel. Really, I was asking his testimony. You know, but, oh, so you know, what, what was it about you, you, know, you? And this is what his answer was. He's like, you know, it was the first thing that just made sense. And that just said it for me. I, I see. I, that, that's where it stopped. Oh, I got it. It's the only thing that makes sense. So on I, on I go. I'll just live my life. It it makes sense. He had never received Christ. I have since learned both those girls walked away from faith. That couple divorced. Uh, There there was nothing in their life that showed me they had any devotion, love for Christ. And they were working in the youth group. Intellectual believers. And every fellowship since Pentecost has had a group like this in it. And this Hebrew community was no different. These non-Christians believe that Jesus, hey, he's the true Messiah. I believe that. But they're not really willing to receive him as their personal Lord and Savior. Now, why? Well, again, go back to it. They're not willing to make the sacrifice. There's suffering going on. Uh, You know, forget it, pal. I don't want to be part of that. And John gives us that clue in John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. That was happening when Jesus healed that man that was born blind. Do you remember the threat to the parents? You'll be kicked out of the synagogue. Oh, we just can't do that. It's just too big a price to pay. But listen, Jesus said there would be a price to pay. That if we denied his name, that he would deny us. That you have to confess him. And that means I'm willing to pay whatever price. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price for me. It's not just believe. You can't just uh, understand it intellectually. These people, they just couldn't bring themselves to make that sacrifice. Now, let me show you some places where this particular group is addressed. Look at chapter 2 again. I read part of it, but look where it starts in verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Do you see that? You see, the Holy Spirit here is urging them to not neglect the salvation that has been so clearly presented to them. You, you tasted it. You're right there, right? And, if, and if, if, the, if God's law came with angels and God proved just and faithful there, How are we going to escape anything if we neglect it? You see that? He's encouraging. Don't stop short. You're at the door. Salvation is there. Look, he talks to them again in chapter 6. And this is one of those passages that people bring to you. Oh, what's this saying? Well, this is the group. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible to, to those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, I'm not going to go into all that today, obviously. We're going to study that in depth when we get to it. But this is a warning to the people who have received full revelation of Jesus. 
Look at everything that he says there. If you had all that happen, you, you've, you've received all of God's words. You're completely enlightened to the truth. You've even tasted the Holy Spirit. Isn't the Holy Spirit the one that reveals truth? He is. You've tasted all that. You've heard all that. You've understood all that. What more can God do? What's, what's he going to do beyond that? that that's everything. And that's why he says it's impossible. I can't. There's nothing more I can do. I've given you everything that you need. When God's revealed himself to you and you're absolutely convinced of the truth, what can God do? The greatest sin that man can commit is that of rejecting Christ. In Luke chapter 12, that's exactly what he's talking about. Maybe you've heard of this phrase, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But let me show it to you in Luke chapter 12, verse 10. This is what Jesus says. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, people just get crazy over this verse. I remember years and years and years ago, I preached on this, but at the time, there was a thing going around the internet called the Blasphemy Challenge. And people were literally loading up videos of themselves in their minds, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Look at that. Look at that. I do myself to eternity in hell because I apparently can't be forgiven. I got up there on the pulpit and said, not, single, not one of those people is doomed to eternity in hell. Not one of them. That's not the unforgivable sin by saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What Jesus was saying is that he's come, he's preached the truth, he's done miracles, and, the, and everyone goes, yeah, that's of the devil. What, what, what can he do now? What other rabbit can he pull out of his hat? You, you see what I'm saying? When the Holy Spirit reveals the truth and you reject it, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What can, what can God do? That's it. Say what you want about Jesus, but if you blaspheme the revealer of truth, the convictor of sin, and you reject that, you have no hope. He says it's impossible to please God. Look how he says it in chapter 10, another one of those problem passages in chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's not talking to believers. He's not talking, oh, you sinned, oh, and you received the truth. Oh, man, there's, there's nothing more. You're doomed. That's not to believers. That's not the God I know. The God I know has brand new mercies every single morning. The God I know says I can confess with my mouth that he's Lord and I'll be forgiven, right? I can confess my sins to him. These are people who get the knowledge but continue to live in sin. He says, there, there's nothing more God can do. Once man has rejected that, they're convinced what, 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 do you, what do you have to look forward to? Well, only verse 27, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. That's all that comes. So listen, Hebrews not only addresses true believers, but addresses those who believe it in their minds, but have never let it go into their hearts. And those people exist in every church, every church since Pentecost. There's always a third group in every congregation and those are just the, the unconvinced, uh, unbelievers who, who, who haven't bought into it at all, right? I don't believe any of it. This group is also addressed with great grace and with great clarity. In chapter 9, verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11, you can see what he's doing here. He's, he's explaining who Christ is and what he has come to do. Again, to a Jewish audience in the ways that they would understand, but look what he says, Hebrews 9, 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. You see, he's explaining to those Jew, Jew non-believers that, that Christ has come as a true high priest. Everyone was waiting for, they, they knew the system was broken because every single year, the priest had to go and sacrifice again and again and again. Or they, they knew we needed a good high priest. He's explaining that to, to, the, to them. He goes on in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So who is it that needs their um, conscience cleansed 
from dead works. A believer? No, it's already happened. A non-believer. This is written to those people in the congregation. Also 9, 27, 28. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin and for salvation. Believers don't need to know or try to understand that it's pointed for men to die once and that judgment is come. We understand that. That's why I'm a Christian, right? I believe that. That's why I praise them. Praise God I've been saved from the judgment to come. That is for non-believers who haven't understood that. They're not convinced. They need to hear the true gospel. So just, I know it's a lengthy introduction, but that's just to help us understand some of the difficult things we're going to come to in Hebrews. Every single church is made up of these groups, every single one. And I don't know why we get to Hebrews and go, oh, but not this one. This is the perfect church. They're all Christians, and, and we get all confused. <laughs> it's not the case. So with that, let's look at the first verse of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Let me just pray right there. Lord, we thank you so much for your, your holy word to us, Lord. We pray with the small amount of time that we have left, Lord, that you would just be with us as we read your word, as we digest this, these, these few uh, verses here, Lord, that you would guide us into truth. You would open up our hearts for all that you want us to see and hear today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here I just see uh, the preparation for Christ. Just a short little outline we're going to start today. The preparation for Christ. Notice again, there's no introduction. There's no mention uh, of who this letter is for or who it's from. He just starts out, comes out guns blazing. And in the opening is elegant. It, it opens sort of like a literary essay. But first, I want you to notice something. And I just want to point this out at this beginning. Uh, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. For, for mankind to know anything about God, God must speak. I, 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 I was walking in city center, and, and a lot of times you'll come across the, the Krishnas. They're, they're in there. I have a conversation with one of them. I got a book from him. I tried to go back and get a second book, and he said, I'm kind of discerning that you really aren't caring so much about the book. <laughs> I was like, you might be right. The book is called Easy Journey to Other Planets. It's a, a fantastic read if you like fantasy. Because the book says that if you use the highest form of yoga, bhakti yoga, I think is what it's called, that you can take yourself to other planets and hopefully find yourself on the planet where the the, the personality of the Godhead exists and there enjoy the Godhead and fellowship with him or it in eternal bliss. All you have to do is yoga yourself there. Listen, every religion that's out there tries to tell us that there is a way uh, to God, that, that man has found a way to God. Here's the truth. You, you are confined. You are trapped we exist in a box, and it's called time and space, and try as you might, you cannot find your way out of the box. Man has no way out of it. Every religion tries to tell you it. Uh, it's not true. For Buddha, it was the eightfold path to nirvana, okay? You follow the eightfold path, and lo and behold, you'll get to nirvana, and hey, you found the supernatural. Way to go. You found God. Islam is really the same thing, repackaged, five pillars of faith. Okay, listen, try as we might, there's no way for, for man to get out of the box to find God. For God to be known, he has to speak. And that's what Hebrews comes out telling us at the very, very beginning, that God spoke. Man didn't speak. Man didn't say, hey, I finally found the way. When you talk to people and say, I know the way to the truth, hope you say, it's because God came first. I didn't find a way because I don't have a way. Man has no way. Every religion says they've got some kind of system, some kind of path, some method to get out of the box, to escape the natural, to find the supernatural. But listen, only Christianity confronts people with the truth. There's no way out of the box. 
God must get them out. And that's what the opening of Hebrews eloquently says. God spoke. I just want to start there. And how did he speak? At various times and in various ways. The author uses a play on words here. Palumeros and palutropos. In various times and in various ways. Palumeros is various times. It literally means in many portions. Portions. And then palutropos in many manners or ways. So what kind of portions, what kind of ways did God speak? What is he referring to? He's referring to a certain number of portions that we will find in the Old Testament. And I'll give, I'll give whatever cash I have in my pocket to anybody who can tell me the number of books in the Old Testament. Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, church. 39, right? There are 39 portions. 39 portions in the Old Testament. And, and all of those are different. Written at different times. Written in various ways. You have men who wrote from visions, men who wrote from dreams, men who heard parables. There are types, there are symbols. And when he spoke, when God spoke, men wrote. And listen, yes, the Bible's written by men and that their minds were not disconnected from that, that their personalities were somehow disconnected from that. But listen, the true inspiration behind every single word was God. That's the truth. An Old Testament revelation was transmitted to us through various, various ways. We have a wonderful bouquet, don't we, in the Old Testament. You have narrative, you have law, you have hymns, you have poetry. We've got proverbs and and parables. We even have love songs, people, in the Old Testament. All of these are portions and they're ways of of communicating. And he communicated all those things, it says, to the fathers. The author simply means the... The entire Old Testament was communicated to all of the spiritual ancestors, not just limited to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all all of them. He spoke to those fathers by the prophets. By the way, do you know the difference between a priest and a prophet? We're talking about prophets here. A priest speaks to to God on behalf of the people, but a, a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. It's him bringing a message from God to the people. He takes that message to man. And every Old Testament writer then is not a priest, he's a prophet. Second Peter 1.21 says this, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, all of Scripture is God-breathed, we're told. We know that to be true. All of it's important. All of it's from God. But stay with me here. As authoritative and as beautiful as the Old Testament is, the Old Testament was incomplete. It was incomplete. Um, e- even the men of faith in the Old Testament, okay, they understood that to be true. The Old Testament points to an unfulfilled promise. In fact, Hebrews 11 gives us an example. After, after they list all the great Old Testament heroes of the faith, this is what it says about them all. Hebrews eleven thirty nine, And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They didn't receive it because it was yet to come. See, it was incomplete, the Old Testament. They foresaw it was going to happen, but they didn't themselves receive it. Now, the Old Testament and and all of Scripture is, this is just a theological term to help you. It's called progressive revelation. Have you heard that term before? Progressive revelation. It means this. Genesis is written. It's given out. And then that is built upon by Exodus Right? And on top of Exodus is Leviticus and, and Numbers. And as you get each piece, there's a little bit more truth and a little bit more truth. Truth building upon truth with each new book of the Old Testament. Revelation is, is progressing from incomplete to a little bit more complete. Not from error to truth. I'm not saying that. But from truth to truth. Okay, It's all truth. But it's incomplete. It's fragmented. It's, it's each person got a little piece right? When you read it, not everybody gave you the whole picture. They didn't have the whole picture, and they didn't really, really understand the picture that they got. None of them understood the whole picture completely. That's why you see the New Testament writers, they look back at the messages of the Old Testament, and they see how it all came together. This is a great passage. First Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 to 12. Just look at 10 to 11 here. It says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them 
was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. He says the prophets were understanding that those things weren't going to be revealed to them. He says, but to us, to New Testament, we were going to understand this. And they got just little bits. They were searching the scriptures and trying to figure it out. When is this Christ? Who is this Christ? To Micah, he got the place. Daniel, you got a time, right? Isaiah, you got the death. You have all these little bits, but they, they couldn't put it all together. They had pieces of it. You see, it's like a picture book for beginners. It begins with the types, and it begins with ceremonies and, and, and prophecies, and all those things progress and progress until it was completed in the New Testament, completed with Jesus Christ. All of that preparation for Christ. And that's what verse 1 is telling us. And then the presentation of Christ. Look at verse 2. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. It tells us it was all pointing to him. It was all about Jesus. Remember our study of uh, Matthew 5. When G- what did Jesus say about the, the, the law? In Matthew five seventeen, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Right? I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. The Old Testament, all of it was in preparation for Christ. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Isn't that amazing? You think you'll find eternal life in, in the scriptures. Now, what were the scriptures at the time that Jesus is talking about? Only the Old Testament. You think you're going to find uh, eternal life Old Testament is not about eternal life. Old Testament is pointing to the one who will bring eternal life. Those testify of me, he says. That's what it is. It's all about me. I love that time when Jesus met those two men on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know it was Jesus. He had risen from the dead. He's in his glorified body. He's he's walking along with them. Hey, what's going on? You haven't heard? Where you been? You've been living in a cave all these days? And so they tell him about Jesus. We were hoping he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We hope he's going to do this and that. And yet... He was crucified, and now we're hearing reports from some women that his tomb is empty. Oh, what are we going to do? This is what Jesus says. What a great, well, I would have loved to have been here. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. No New Testament book written. He said, you foolish ones, here, just sit down. Let me just show you. Let me just go there. And I don't know where he started. He started in Moses. Could be, could be Genesis. Could be Genesis 3.15. Look at that. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. Who is that talking about? I'm the seed of the woman. Let me just show you guys. He's just turning pages. Let me just show you. I'm the ram caught in the thicket, baby, right? I'm the door of the ark. Come on. Come on. Look at this. He's just going through it. I am every place. Just I want you to see it. You go all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Malachi, I'm the great judge that's going to come and judge the adversaries. You just hold on. You just wait. What a great sermon that would have been. There could be any time I could go back to, I want to go back to the road on Emmaus. Amazing. So coming with Jesus, when Jesus came, God said all he wanted to say. God said everything that he wanted to say. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. The coming of Jesus was a sign of the last days. The Gospels are written. They record the historical facts and truths of of Christ, how he lived, how he died, what he said, what he did. And the rest of of, uh, the New Testament was written to look back at those Gospels, to interpret the significance of all that happened and the importance of it. That's what the, uh, the, the apostles are writing. Look at that. Look at what this meant. And then you have the book of Revelation written, and, and it co- talks about the future coming and all that will lie ahead of us. And then when, it, when that book was written and that was finished, then God was done. God said all that he wanted to say. Revelation twenty two eighteen and 19 gives this a warning. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, the prophecy, God shall take away his part 
from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. There's no more. God said everything that he wanted to say. And so when you have these religions, you have the Book of Mormon and these things come out and saying, oh, God, God had more to say. God did not have more to say. Why? Because in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. His son. End of story. So what's the point of all, of all this? People want to know God. They want to know the way to God. They want to know the way to eternal life. You want to tell people the way out of the box? Know Jesus. Know Jesus. It starts with him. We, listen, we can't point people to some system out of the box. What you have to confess is, listen, I, I can't get out, but God came in to take us out. And he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. We introduce people to him. And you can't mistake that. You can't have conversations to people about God. Even the demons believe and shudder. You have to have conversations about the one who can take us to God. You have conversations about his son. You have conversations about Jesus. And you say, he is the one that can save you. Him and him alone. The wonderful truth about this whole book, this encouragement to these believers in the suffering is to say, listen, hold on. I know things are difficult, but listen, you know Jesus. You, you can't go back to anything better. Everything is everything's a shadow. Everything pointed to Jesus. You have the better. You have the best. Stick with him. Hold on. He's coming back. So Hebrews is going to be a great book. I'm looking forward to our study. Don't miss it. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity you're giving us to study this marvelous book, the book of Hebrews. And Lord, I just pray for your people. I pray for me, Lord, as we begin to prepare our hearts for the next year or so that we'll be in this book, Lord, that we would just be so excited and open to all that you want to show us, Lord, that our, our, our view of you would just go higher and higher and higher, that our love for you would grow more and deeper, Lord, that we would just fall greater in love with you than, than we are in love with you now, Lord, that you would just continue to Uh, mold our hearts and shape our beings, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your word. I pray that you would bless each and every person here today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.